My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I do want to make friends, trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Time to accept that we have a gigantic rollback going on. Sell, sell, sell. We're seeing an assault on pretty much every economic front right now, and the market's furiously trying to build in the negatives. Including today, where the Dow lost 94 points, SB shed 0.75%, NASDAQ tumbled 1.04%, but at one point it was down much more than that. It's hard going because bear markets, you know, we know we're in one. Bear markets always try to tempt you to buy, like this one did all day. When I got up at 4 a.m., we were looking down about a half percent, same as last night. Made sense. There's nothing good happening today except the bond market's closed for Indigenous Peoples Day. Bonds have been central to the market's problems. So when that store is closed, it's good news for the stock market. Sure enough, the market then begins to work its way higher, starting about 5.15 a.m. Mind you, there's some overseas noise about British bond buying, but here there's nothing to justify that kind of inflection. I checked the big research houses. The way they have think pieces that come out over the weekend. Again, nothing positive. We can't find anything worth hanging our hats on. Individual research on individual companies. I know to buy J.P. Morgan stock at the end of the week. Kind of interesting. Upgrades of Kraft Heinz and Merck against a slew of downgrades and price target cuts. Miasma. It's all bad. I mean, really bad. Nothing to buy. Right down to still one more hammering of China on semiconductors. This time, much, much more broad than expected, as I had to tell members of the Charitable Trust who follow me in the Charitable Trust and the Investing Club. At the same time, of course, Russia ups the ante by firing missiles all over Ukraine, hitting many civilian targets. So what happens? With the futures rocking, we go into the session full steam ahead. Why not? We're technically oversold. We fell furiously on Friday. There are no bonds getting in the way. Opening looks so tempting. Fortunately, I'm experienced enough not to take the bait. This morning, I told my squawk on the street colleague, David Faber, that if there's no reason to have a rally, then the rally's not real. I reiterated that point in my... 1020 morning meeting talk with Jeff Marks with the CNBC Investing Club because up openings cannot be chased, people. Sadly, I know a lot of people haven't gotten that memo and they end up being hurt on days like today. They buy it up because it feels good. Uh-uh. It will feel bad. You know why that is? Because there's widespread desire to take advantage of the negativity by doing some buying. With everyone so negative, yeah, a lot of people figure there's got to be an opportunity here. It's sentiment-driven, taking the other side, because you want to see the glass half full, even if it is not empty, but actually taking water out. That's what's happening right now. The water is coming out. Sometimes that's actually the right move. You know, periodically you get a situation where everybody's so negative, it works, right? It's reasonable. We saw, though, another side of the trade in 2000, after the dot-com boom. A collapse in Internet stocks was totally logical. Similarly, right before the Great Recession, told you to put your money out of the market if you were going to need it in the next five years. Hey, both were great calls. See, there are times when it's worth it to be negative. I don't think this moment is analogous to 2000, 2008. We had a lot of joke companies with no sales back in the dot-com era. They deserved to be slaughtered. They got basically what they should have. 
Well, I've had a huge number of garbage SPACs and low-quality IPOs from recent years. For the most part, they're better than, <laughs> than their year 2000 predecessors. Do you know that more than 300 stocks went to zero in that earlier vintage, which, if you're keeping track, amounts to about 90% of the entire IPO crop? Today, we're seeing a lot of declines in the newly public stocks, but merc- mercifully, uh, they're not going out of business. As for the Great Recession, just forget it. It's, it's not analogous at all. Those were perilous times. So many large institutions went under that some respectable commentators were actually coined from the nationalization of the banking system. If Nobel Prize winning Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke, congratulations, Ben, hadn't drawn a line in the sand in 2009 saying the bank failures were over, I think the system could have collapsed. There's just nothing like that now. But like my mom always said, comparisons are odious. What does it matter if so many dot-coms collapsed in 2000? What does it matter if we had a great recession that decimated our portfolios and left the financial system in tatters? The fact is, we got a different narrative, but same result. We have a lot of inflation right now, and it has to be wiped out. It just has to be wiped out. Unfortunately, the Fed only has one tool, blunt instrument, to make that happen. That's raising interest rates. It doesn't immediately help either, though, which is the real problem here right now. We've seen a dramatic decline in the savings rate in the last year. It's down substantially from the pandemic highs. But that's yet to impact consumer spending. We have 7% mortgage rates, yet people are still buying houses. We have companies that have stopped hiring, especially in tech, yet we don't have huge layoffs. People can still job hop from one firm to another and collect higher salaries with ease. Supply chains are still groaning under the weight of excess demand. The number of retirees is staggering, but reasonable when you consider the buyouts so many companies offered during the worst days of the pandemic. We don't know when the Fed will be done raising rates. But as of last Friday's red-hot employment report, we know it won't be anytime soon. Of course, we get a producer price index number on Wednesday, and many of those inputs are going to be down. Will it make a difference? I don't think it's enough to trump the employment number. I've studied the staying power of all government statistics over the last 20 years, and nothing, I repeat, nothing is more respected and powerful than a non-farm payroll number. It sticks with you from month to the next one. So even though many managers are now worried that more aggressive hikes could cause some real financial blow-ups, the Fed has no choice. Right now, at this very moment, they think they're losing the war against inflation. Maybe we will look back two or three years from now and say, wow, they put us in such a nasty recession. Why didn't they wait and slow the rate hikes? See what happens. Make them smaller. Why didn't they realize there was a big decline in business about to occur? Hey, yeah, you could do that. But from where they sit, their efforts have a stench of abject failure because they haven't stemmed the runaway costs of WFH. No, not work from home. Wages, food, and housing. The Fed can't directly cause any of those to go down, but they can make it harder for companies to borrow money indirectly, throwing a lot of people out of work, which pushes wages down. Food's up because 30 to 40% of our fertilizer, integral to growing, comes from Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine. Plus, droughts are everywhere. But when the economy gets bad enough, people do buy cheaper foods. They do cut back. As for housing, we're probably at the cusp of when home sellers break price at last and start hitting bids while potential home buyers can't get or afford a mortgage. Still, they haven't done so yet. They just haven't. Once the data shows that wages, food, and homes are going down in price, a data-dependent Fed will stop raising rates, something reiterated by Vice Chair Lael Brandon today. But so far, there's no such data. What are they supposed to do? Hope they'll be right? Guess they'll be right? I don't think that's worth taking the risk. And that's why until the market's viciously oversold, which we aren't, and we get softer data for wage, for food and housing, you've got to treat all these rallies as head fakes. I take the Fed at its word. It will change if the facts change. Sadly, the facts haven't changed. So let's stop pretending. If Fed Chief Powell announced that we're on the cusp of a significant decline 
in the price of wages, food, or homes, or maybe just even one of them, then we can get and anticipate more bullish. We can, even if we miss the first day of the run. But we're not there yet. So stay the course. Keep some cash for better times. Bottom line, right now, you can get a bounce. Without some more data that shows the Fed's actually winning the war against inflation, though, rates will keep going relentlessly higher, and any rally will feel great when it's occurring, but will no doubt have a very short shelf life. Let's go to Brian, North Carolina. Brian. Yes, I'm here. Hey, Brian. Shit, what's up? Hey, how you doing? So my question. Hey, you know, hanging you, in. Yeah. So my question for you is about neighbors. Uh, acquisition of Poshmark. Um, I unfortunately listened to a guy I know who works up in New York uh, for Morgan Stanley, um, and he told me last August, August is 21, to buy Posh at $25 a share. And I unfortunately listened to him. And I'm, I don't know if you know, but the stock has done nothing but plunge ever since then. No, that's true. And then we got the yeah. bid. But here's the way I feel. Here's the way I feel about this, Brian. It's important. I thought that was a watershed. First time that during this horrible period, we got a company that was brought public in the last couple of years that actually got you out. But it didn't get you out whole, just like it didn't to you. So I think it's good that Poshmark got a bid, but bad that it was so low. And you obviously concur. How about Carolyn in Minnesota? Carolyn. Hi there. Booyah, Jim, and thank you for taking my question today. Oh, I'm so glad you called. What's going on? Well, I've been a longtime investor in 3M Company, and I've really appreciated stability and mostly its strong growing dividend that's been in place, like, for 64 years, right? But given its recent significant share price drop, you know, due to market forces, sure, but really made worse by mounting litigation, I have two related questions. First, do you think they can continue paying the dividend like they've been? And second of all, would you call this stock a buy, a sell, or a hold? Okay, Karen, you ask great questions, and thank you for the comments about the show. Uh, my father rep for three, yeah, Scotch tape for 3M, and Sasheen. Always really respected the company, but they have both uh, groundwater litigation and what's known as combat arms litigation, which is about tinnitus and uh, problems with hearing for uh, vet, for for people who serve. Those are monumental. So, no, I can't get in front of that one uh, because I think that the litigation stories, both of them, get one of them, maybe two. No, I can't do it. I wish they'd come on, though, and explain how we can get out of this jam if we do own 3M. Without some more data that shows the Fed's actually winning the war against inflation, any rally is going to have to be short-lived. I, it, it can rally. It can oversell rally. But you heard what I had to say. Everybody tonight with a third quarter in the rear view. I'm recapping the best and worst in the Dow and sharing what you need to know. Then Uber and Lyft have been in fierce competition since their inception. But which rideshare stock could pull ahead on Wall Street? I'll give you my take. Then one of my favorites, Damon John, is leading the third annual Black Entrepreneur's Day. But does this person bring give back, give back, give back? And I'm finding out how the pandemic disproportionately impacted Black-owned businesses and what the path to recovery looks like and how you can help. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC.
miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Now that we have turned the page on a truly awful third quarter, this week I want to catch you up on where we are by doing a deep dive into the best and worst performers of each major index. We're going to start with Dow Jones Industrial Average, the staid, some might say stodgy group of 30 large companies that make up the backbone of our economy. The Dow finished the quarter down an ominous 6.66%, worse than the S&P and 500 or the NASDAQ. I think that reflects the new face of the market. Early this year, we saw a massive sell-off in stocks that get hit the hardest by inflation. But lately, Wall Street's been bracing itself for a Fed-mandated recession and dumping anything that gets hurt, especially hard in in a slowdown, hence the weakness in the Dow. So let's talk winners and losers. Only three Dow components were actually up for the quarter. But I think it's worth looking at the five best performers. Learn, learn, learn. Number one was Walmart. Now, this was up 6.7%. Frankly, this is very surprising. As Walmart pre-announced to the downside in late July, cutting its full-year earnings forecast for the second time in a row. Maybe that's a charm. However, it turns out they were lowering expectations to the point where they could be beaten, which is what happened when Walmart reported mid-August. At the same time, this is a slowdown stock. People love to buy it as a trade-down play going into recession. You know, they had low prices every day. I'm wary of recommending Walmart, though, given management's repeated missteps earlier this year. Number two is Apple, up 1.1% in the third quarter. I've been telling you to own Apple, not trade it for years. What more can I say? Wall Street loves to churn out nonsense negativity. I call it Michigas, one of the largest companies in the world. But Apple always manages to defy the critics. I say stick with it. Sure, could it miss the quarter? Any company can miss the quarter. Probably buy more from the trust. Third, it's the Despot, Home Depot, up a piddling 0.6%. Yes, the Despot's a bit of an enigma. Most retailers struggled in the first half, but these guys reported some truly resilient numbers. It's even more confusing when you remember that Home Depot is supposed to be tied to the housing market, which investors are avoiding like the plague, because housing is toxic at this point in the business cycle. So how is the stock holding up this well? I think it's because Home Depot is more levered to professional contractors than regular consumers which insulates him against a, kind of a lot of the weakness, as pros do a lot of renovation, which is in keeping with the slowdown where people can't easily sell their homes, so they fix them up. But it's tough to recommend the stock again, even though we visited him recently in Perth, and boy, he loved it, because we know there's going to be less construction activities. The Fed keeps tightening. Best house in a real tough neighborhood, maybe? Fourth, we've got Kramer fave Walt Disney down just 0.1%. This stock had been in the doghouse for ages, most recently getting slammed by Wall Street's disdain for anything connected to streaming. But Disney's not just Disney Plus, please, which has a ton of great stuff. They've got a fabulous theme park business that's doing great right now, a big film business. And they own ESPN, which could be moving aggressively into the main growth area of sports, gambling, perhaps being with a partnership with one of the major uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, gambling houses. Don't want to be too specific. I like the one, uh, this one so much that, you know what, we have a big business in for, for our travel trust. I think we're going to look back and marvel that it fell so far. However, we are down in position. And you know I like to play with an open hand for the investing club. Fifth best performer is Chevron, down 0.8%. Chevron's been a roller coaster this year as the price of oil is going up and down and up and down. We actually sold this one for the charitable trust earlier, uh, but it was a, a, a huge profit. Uh, that was simply discipline. Remember, you never want to give back a big profit. Now, I am a giant believer in Chevron, though, and I think CEO Mike Worth is doing a terrific job. 
They're printing money here with crude back in the 90s, but things could get precarious if the global recession gets really ugly as we have less use for oil in that case. All right, now how about the losers? I think these are really telling. The first thing you notice about the losers in the Dow is that in a Fed-mandated bear market like this one, and they, they are mandated because they want, your, <laughs> they want your buying power lower, dividends, well, they offer you no protection whatsoever. In fact, higher-yielding stocks are often more dangerous because they're a sign a yield that may be, uh, I don't know, that a cut in the payout is coming. Let's pull them apart individually because I don't want to just uh, – paint them with a broad brush. Some of these have the money to be able to stay with the dividend as it is. The fifth worst performer, IBM, down nearly 16%, 5.6% yield. Not long ago, IBM spun off their slow-growing services business as Kindle and doubled down on being a hybrid cloud analytics platform. Smart, right? Unfortunately, the cloud stocks are no longer loved, more like hated. If Wall Street assumed that Google Cloud, Microsoft Azure, and Amazon Web Services are all slowing, then it really doesn't matter how good IBM's hybrid strategy might be. Nobody cares in this market. Now, I think that's too negative. I still think it's a great business to be in the cloud. But I'm just one guy. Is it so dire that we have to worry about IBM's dividend? The company has a ton of cash flow, and CEO Arvind Krishnan swears by it. But let's just say there are safer ways to make a 5% return. Pretty soon, you'll be able to get that, I fear, from uh, the two-year treasury, at least at this pace. Next up is really discouraging. Walgreens down 17%, 6% yield. I have to admit, I expected better of this company given the COVID booster shot business. But when I see Walgreens trading at 6.3 times earnings, that tells me they gained very little market share during the pandemic, unlike CVS. I think the company lacks a strategy for beating two of its biggest re- uh, threats. Uh, one is Amazon, and the other is existential, pilferage. There's nothing special about this chain except there are a lot, of, a lot of stores. If you need staples, it's not an emergency. Amazon's better. The theft issue is a nightmare, and it's not, never addressed. When I was in San Francisco recently, I, I asked cashiers if they mind that I pay, because no one else seems to. Most of the stuff's under lock and key anyway, but the stores don't have enough staff to open the darn locks. So it takes forever to buy anything decent. I recently gave up buying some hair care products, and I don't even need that, you'd think, right? But at a nearby Walgreens, after waiting five minutes, with no one even bothering to answer the buzzer that you keep pushing in order to get someone to open, the, open up the lock? I do have a great pharmacy at my usual Walgreens, but I feel very much in the minority, as most people seem to prefer CVS. Third worst is Nike, down nearly 19%. Nike's been exposed as a China play. With China falling double digits, you aren't going to make any money in this stock. I still respect their now elusive management, but Nike's fighting on so many fronts here. A slowdown in Europe, the decline in the mall, supply issues. They'll be resolved eventually. My view, when the war in Ukraine ends and China abandons its moronic COVID policy, Nike will come back, roaring back. I think it's worth the wait, actually, but you've got to be patient. Dow's second worst performers, Verizon, down 25%, basically a bomb. Of, nah, who knows what, what the credit ratings are going to say if the cash flow doesn't pick up. I don't want a 7% yield from a phone company that's getting its head handed to it by T-Mobile. I, I think you can make a couple of bucks in Verizon if the Fed stops raising rates, but I could name 400 other stocks in the S&P that make for better plays on the same thing. Business is on a slow, steady, endless decline. No end in sight. Pass. Finally, there's Intel down 31%, even though it has a 5.8% yield. Who cares about the dividend when I bet they've got a not-so-hot quarter? Give them a beer from competitor AMD. I know Intel has a no-worry stance when it comes to the dividend, something I'm aware of because I seem to be the only person who's questioned it in the media. I just don't know or see how Intel has the cash flow it needs to pay the dividend and also do its enormous manufacturing build-out. I think something has to give, considering the PC slowdown. It's the worst industry in the world right now. Let's <laughs> go see my bulletins today for my travel trust. And that's honestly, I'm putting it lightly. 
Bottom line, anything economically sensitive has been crushed. And even high dividend yields are no protection when the Fed is on the warpath. Bad Money's back here for the break. Coming up, come on and take a free ride? Kramer's got a rideshare review you won't want to miss. Next. Even in a dismal market where investors are fleeing stocks for risk-free treasury notes, because it's very tough to identify winners and you're getting a good return on those treasuries, I'm still a believer in stock picking. Some days it's harder than others, but at the end of the day, I think you can do better by having a bedrock index fund and at the same time try to find some high-quality companies with good management that are out-executing their competitors. You can do both, and I want to help you with the latter, but only after you have a good index fund position. Diversification can be a lifesaver in this market. Now, I know this is a market that paints with an incredibly broad brush. Entire sectors tend to trade together, which can make stock picking seem like a fool's earn. But let me give you a counter example that I think will really show you why I like what I do. For years, Uber and Lyft traded in lockstep because they're more or less in the same business. Why should one ride-sharing company stock trade differently than another ride-sharing stock? Well, they should be the same, right? Oh. It's actually not a rhetorical question, though, because over the last few months, Uber stock has pulled away from Lyft in a major way. Yep, after bottoming in late June, Uber stock has rebounded substantially from its lows. Meanwhile, the stock of Lyft's been bouncing along the bottom the whole time, currently up less than a buck from its all-time low. Uber, by comparison, is nowhere near its all-time low, which was set in 2020 during the initial COVID crash. And this has been going on all year. Both stocks have been hideous performers in 2022. They're exactly the kind of growth stock that Wall Street despises because there is zero patience for every growth stock since the Fed declared war on inflation 11 months ago. But Lyft's down 70% for the year, while Uber's only down 34%. That's a huge disparity in performance for a pair of stocks that we used to consider borderline indistinguishable. Why? Because over and over, we've been getting the same message. Uber's winning across a host of different businesses, not just ride-sharing, but also food delivery and its truck brokerage operation. While Lyft, the ride-sharing pure play, it's lagging sadly behind. So how did Uber distinguish itself from Lyft? Okay, it's worth pointing out that both stocks were still pretty much joined at the hip at the beginning of this year. They started to separate in early May in which both companies reported solid results that nevertheless sent their stocks lower. But while Lyft lost 30% of its value in a single session, Uber only took a 4.7% hit from the Lyft pin action when it reported the next morning. That's obviously not good, but it's much, much better than the devastation Lyft. What went wrong? Even though both ride-sharing companies had better than expected results, their guidance was downright putrid. Why was Lyft so much worse? It comes down to execution. When the conference call, Lyft said that they were having trouble, still having trouble, frankly, finding drivers to meet off-the-charts levels of demand, which is why their EBITDA forecast was so ugly. They basically have to pay people more to attract drivers. But Uber, strangely, told a very different story. They were having no trouble finding drivers. By the way, while I don't encourage hedge fund like trading for individuals, if you notice this disparity in May and traded off it, say, by going long Uber and shorting the stock of Lyft, you would have made a bundle. Now, a few days after those results came out, CNBC's own Deirdre Bosa got her hands on an internal letter that Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi sent to all his employees. This thing was incredible. Khosrowshahi made it crystal clear that he's different. 
He perfectly understands the current market zeitgeist. Listen to this. I think it's amazing. Channeling Jerry Maguire, we need to show them the money. We have made a ton of progress in terms of profitability, but the goalposts have changed. I'm going to repeat, the goalposts have changed. That's the key line here. Now it's about free cash flow. We can and should get there fast. There will be companies that put their heads in the sand and are slow to pivot. Think about that. The tough truth is that many of them will not survive. May 8th, 2022, one of my personal heroes, just, you know, couldn't have said it better myself. At the same time, he quickly realized that Uber needed to spend a lot less aggressively, which was very encouraging. Wall Street's no longer rewarding companies that invest fortunes in unprofitable revenue growth. It's punishing them instead. So Uber's pivot to become more of a cash machine was very well received and was a very smart move. Of course, Lyft eventually got to do a similar place. When they reported again in August, Lyft's management made the same kind of comments about the need to cut costs and pursue profitability. But Uber got there in May, giving them a huge head start. Hey, speaking of August, this time Uber reported an excellent set of numbers. They gave you a robust top and bottom line beat with much better than expected free cash flow. While their bookings guidance for the next quarter was a little disappointing, nobody cared because the earnings for interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, EBITDA forecast, was much higher than anyone was looking for. In response, the stock jumped 19% in a single day. Hey, that one's a good to catch. As for Lyft, they turned in a solid set of numbers, better than feared, and even had a surprise profit. But their free cash flow, remember what, uh, what Dara said in his memo? Their free cash flow at Lyft came in negative, and the guidance for the next quarter was mixed. In the end, Lyft stock jumped 16% the day Uber reported, and another 16% after they reported two days later. A lot of that's simply because management finally seemed to realize we're in a brave new world where investors want profitability, not growth at any price. That still exists. Since August, though, Uber's stock has once again separated itself from Lyft's. Uber jumped more than the mid-20s, uh, from the mid-20s to the high-20s after that quarter, before climbing to 33 and change by mid-August. Since then, the market's gotten real ugly, but even with all the carnage, the stock's still at 27 and change. It hasn't totally erased its gains uh, from the quarter. Lifts a different and sadder story. While the stock surged from 13 to 20 in the first week of August, it's right back down to 12 and change as of today. Like the quarter never really happened. Why has Uber held up so much better than the teeth of this hideous sell-off? I think it's because they're finally getting credit for the superior execution, not to mention superior attitude and superior state of mind, not unlike legend Steven Seagal as Mason Storm in Hard to Kill. A little over a month ago, Bank of America initiated coverage of Lyft with an underperformed rating, with the crux of their argument being that Uber's a much better bet. Uber's got more scale and ride sharing. They're taking more market share. And these analysts also think they'll have an easier time hitting their earnings estimates. A couple weeks ago, the UBS Evidence Lab, which I really love, published a survey of ride sharing delivery app drivers. They found that drivers consistently prefer Uber. Even the ones who use Lyft don't use it as their main driving app. At the same time, UBS found that Uber's finally seeing some benefits from its move to combine ride sharing with food delivery via Uber Eats. Lots of drivers using both platforms. Most importantly, based on their data, 65% of Uber drivers use Uber as their go-to platform. Only 13% of Lyft drivers use Lyft as their go-to platform. No wonder Uber's having an easier time finding people. Finally, last Friday, coup de grace, RBC Capital downgraded Lyft, also pointing out that Uber's just got a big structural advantage over its main rival. Here's the bottom line. If you want to take a risk owning a ride-sharing stock, I am begging you to stick with Uber, the best breed, rather than trying to bottom fish in the beaten-down Lyft, which hasn't yet figured out the way out of a jam that Uber is beating. And Dara Kosmashari, you are always, of course, invited to be on the show. You are, I reiterate, a hero of mine. Let's go to Hassan in Michigan. Hassan. 
Hey, Jim, I hope you're having a great day. Uh, Rivian has been in the news a lot lately. Uh, they have partnerships with Amazon and Mercedes-Benz, and then today news of a recall broke out. At this point, are they a buy, sell, or a hold? I defer to Phil Le- LeBeau, who's absolutely the best reporter when it comes to autos at airlines, too. And he said that it really wasn't that meaningful a, uh, a problem. A recall was a fastener. And therefore, I think that the stock being down almost 8% to 7% today is an overreaction. I think you're OK. Again, this is a concept stock, and I don't like concept stocks, but it's a darn good concept. Let's go to Tyler in California. Tyler. Hey, big booyah, Jim. Thank you, Tyler. What's going on? All right. So I, I've been uh, there's a particular stock that I like. It, it, I am wondering if this has been possibly the bottom since its earnings in 2020. It did really bad. And since then, it's been horrible. I want to know if this is a bottom on this stock or if this is the end because of the uh, pandemic and stuff. Uh, CCL, Carnival Corporation. All right, this is a great question. I'm going to use it for a little bit of instruction, Tyler, if you don't mind. I never like to reach and find a stock that is not best to breed. When I do have best to breed Norwegian Cruise Line, that it is more expensive. But I have much better feel after speaking to Frank Del Rio, the CEO. I think Carnival's were in a precarious spot and Norwegian isn't. So the answer is, if you like Carnival, then you should love Norwegian Cruise Lines. All right. If you want to risk owning a ride-sharing stock, I want you to stick with Uber rather than trying to bottom fish to the beaten-down lift. I have much more made money. I had my exclusive with Damon John, one of my absolute favorite guests, just ahead of the third annual Black Entrepreneurs Day. I'm learning more about the mission to create a more equitable and fair economy with the infamous shark. Then ESG investing concerns are top of mind for U.S. Republicans. So how could this government action impact the future of green investing? I'm going to give you my take. And, of course, all your calls rapid-fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. I'm lucky to have a show. Sometimes I have a guest that just makes me feel great to have on because he's so terrific. We're all happy to put the pandemic behind us, right? But let's not forget that it hit some communities a lot harder than others. For example, during the lockdown, black-owned businesses were going under it at more than twice the rate of white-owned businesses. That's wrong. Real ugly side of American capitalism. But according to The Washington Post, things are getting better. We now have more black-owned businesses than we did before the pandemic. However, we still got a long way to go if we're ever going to have an equitable business environment, which you know this, this show stands for. And that's why we've got to speak with Damon John, the founder and CEO of FUBU, longtime supporter of the show. With, you probably recognize him as one of the original sharks from Shark Tank. On Thursday the 27th, write this down. He's hosting his third annual Black Entrepreneurs Day presented by Chase for Business at the Apollo Theater. And we want to hear all about it. Mr. John, welcome back to Mad Money. I am excited. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Oh, my God. I I love this. I finally have some style. Oh, amazing. Amazing. All right. Let's talk. I first uh, had you on when this started. Yes. It's been such a success. Talk about how you've been able to help individuals, businesses, and at the same time, have a sponsorship list that's best in show. Yeah, absolutely. During the pandemic, we watched. I was watching people burning businesses instead of uh, building it. I reached out to many people, such as you. Hey, I want to talk about this. Corporations, organizations, Chase and Shopify, and then called up 
a lot of my celebrity friends who wanted to talk to people about showing them what their failures were in life. We broadcasted the first time from my basement. Right. Now, this is the third year. We gave away a quarter million dollars uh, for the last two years. And now we're going to probably surpass about $750,000 of grants. Wow. Okay. Two people, uh, black businesses that keep them open uh, uh, and have the, the NAACP issue the grants out. We're not taking any of their businesses. And we're back for the third year in the at the Apollo Theater Live where I'm paying it forward. I couldn't even afford to go into the Apollo Theater. Now I'm booking it out and hopefully uh, somebody is going to be bigger and well, better than Damon John. People to by reading Say Rise and Grind. Yeah, no right. one Absolutely. Can do yeah. to be like you. Now. You have got some amazing speakers. One of my absolute favorites is the Lowe's CEO, Marvin Ellison. How did you get him? He's fantastic. Marvin is absolutely amazing. And, you know, I've worked with him ever since. My clothes were in JCPenney's, and then he moved over to Lowe's, and he's doing so many great things. And I think this is the important part. I I think you just said it, right? Business is supposed to support this, but, you know, businesses after this whole thing has happened, they've been pulling back because they have to look at their numbers. Right. And sometimes they don't look at the people behind that. And in our community, you know, the African-Americans feel we're always the, the last hired and the first fired. Right. And a lot of people have cut their dedication towards the space that they had two years ago. But all of my people stood by and actually doubled down. And I think that's important because they Chase and Shopify and, and uh, you know, Marvin, they've all really and T-Mobile and Pepsi and Nike have doubled down. And it's worth it to double down, given some yeah. of the amazing success stories you had. We looked at a fantastic site, the Cupcake Collection yeah. in Nashville. Uh, you've got Harlem Chocolate Factory. We kept these doors open because during the pandemic, they needed a couple of dollars just to bridge them throughout that time. We didn't take any of their businesses. And now they're up and flourishing and they're still reinvesting in the community and hiring people that need these jobs. You know, I, I was glad to see the J.P. Morgan evolve. I saw them yeah. at 9th, 9th and 19th in my hometown of Philadelphia opening branches yeah. where they should. They've got, you know, is it weird to say a bank's got heart? You know what? They're deploying $10 billion, uh, $30 billion over the next 10 years, and they have been uh, men and women of their word, and I've been working with them so many times, and they was from the Chase side, from the Chase for Business side, and now the J.P. Morgan Wealth side, to show people that even we're talking black entrepreneurs, that you think like an entrepreneur, but what are you doing with your 401k? How are you understanding taxes? How are you understanding things? You don't necessarily need to be an entrepreneur. You need to be entrepreneurial thinking within the system. And they're showing that because they're showing that they're how to deploy capital. And everyone's still excited about Shark Tank. You've yes. made some pretty good investments. Yeah. Still exciting for you? It is very exciting. You know, this is the first year we did it live uh, for in 14 years. And we still learn from the people that show up on that stage who... Uh, you think about it. We started in 07, 08, when uh, rough a, time. What a run. Full circle. Full and, circle. And some of them have done quite well, your businesses. They've done very, very well. Bomba Socks is the one that probably everybody knows. Every time you buy a pair of socks, they give a pair away. And I believe they are the new fruit of the loom, but direct to consumers. And consumers care about what you're doing for others simultaneously. Absolutely. Absolutely. They do. Now, I just need a little quick read of the economy. Yeah. Uh, your CEO of FUBU, uh, retail, okay? Retail is very challenging. Very, very, very challenging. Uh, First of all, the, the, the access to people who want to work and then the data when people are changing their buying habits and they're worried about gas. They're worried about, uh, you know, inflation. Let's trade down. We should be looking at trade down stocks then. Yeah. Yeah. That's for real. Yeah. Now, one last thing. I, my friends at Shopify are involved, right? I read, read that they, uh, they're doing live pitches from three yes. entrepreneurs with the winner getting 25000 
Yeah, Shopify is showing you that maybe you don't need retail. You know, everybody wants to be their own store, and they're saying you're going to pitch yourself, whether to your customer, to your investors, to anybody, and they want to have a pitch competition, very much a Shark Tank type, but the winner is going to get this cash and be able to have, uh, you know, their Shopify store and bring their business to life. You and I are blessed. We've yes. done well. We are. That 25000 is too low. So I'd like, if you didn't mind, I have a charitable trust that's running congestion with the CNBC uh, Investing Club. Let's double that. Make it 50. You are the man. I okay. appreciate that. that well, is thank go. you very thank much. Thank you so much. Of As course. always, oh, e- my God. Easiest call in the world to give back. Uh, that's what you've taught me. The, easy, many the easiest thing to sell is the truth. Thank you, brother. Damon John, Black Entrepreneurs Day founder at Fubo and Shark Group CEO. You must, must, must read his books, which are just so... <laughs> They are just so exciting to read. And the, the, talk, the stories of what this man's been through. Everybody's back here for the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls. And the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round. Next. That's where I take your calls. Rabbit fire. You send the name of stock. I tell you, buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. Just because of the course, stock question. That my staff first square to the right. Play the sound. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Ski Day? Time for the lightning round. Crane, everybody. Let's start with Martin in Florida. Martin. Hi, Jim. How you doing? I'm doing well, Martin. How about you? Beautiful day in New York. How can I help? No, I'm in Florida. Well, that's another place. <laughs> Not that controversial, Jim, right? I've been very uh, controversial. I don't Jim, I want to. Yeah. Jim, I want to get your opinion on two things, if possible, on Moody Stock and General Electric. Do you think All I right, should well, hold is on? Just, I, you know, GE is very tough because it does. It, it's got a great aerospace business. The rest is kind of slow. Uh, but you know, let's talk Moody's. Moody's is really a problem. Why? Because they're such a good company, but there's been so little issuance for them to rate to begin with that they're, I don't think they're going to, I think a very hard time making the quarter and the stock's way overvalued. Luann in New Jersey. Luann. Booyah! Hey, Jim. Thanks so much for teaching me about the wonderful world of stocks. Oh, thank you. It's been so darn hard. Thank you. How can I help? Yeah, so I bought BlackBerry BB about a year ago, and, um, you know, they're partnering with Amazon, they're getting into electric vehicles, they're, you know, the big pivot, right, from that awesome little keyboard they used to have on the mobile phones, but... uh, Right, but you know what, I've been against them the whole way down, and they're losing money, the meme search were against me on this, they're against me on AMC, they're against me on GameStop, they really hate me, and you know what? I kind of like that masochist Philadelphian. Doesn't bother me. So I say we avoid BlackBerry. We avoid, I don't know, GameStop. I don't know what they're doing. They're crypto. And uh, AMC, I don't know. I guess we were right. Let's go to Garish in Texas. Garish. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. I would like to ask if the NOAX is sell or buy. NOAX? Yeah. NOAX? No that. Novavax. Yeah. Uh, I've been yeah. saying sell this stock uh, the whole way down. And I'm not done saying sell the stock. So I think that pretty much is what I call dispositive. Let's go to Teresa in Colorado. Teresa. Booyah, Dr. Kramer. Whoa, I always wanted to go to that med school, but I'll take what I've got now. What's going on? 
uh, first time, long time, and I, I do have to express my gratitude and appreciation for you sharing your expertise with individual investors like me and helping oh, us try to navigate you. through this volatile market. Oh, it's so you. hard, Teresa. I talk about it all week with my wife and with Jeff Marks. It's like I want to get everything right. And I just can't. Just the way life it's, is. How can I help hard. you? <laughs> okay, originally I purchased a position in 2017 within my IRA account as a kind of a okay. play on the aging baby boomer population. This real estate investment trust has holdings in senior housing, life sciences, hospitals, and medical office space. It posted another 52-week low again today, but still has a price-earnings ratio of around 53 with a 5.5% dividend yield. Tell me, Kramer, should I add to my position, hold, or sell some shares of Health Peak Properties? Well, first, I want to thank you for the kind words. It has been laborious, to say the least, to do this job, but i got to tell you, the problem with Health Peak, it just simply isn't as good as Ventos. I would swap one to the other because one's Deb Kafaria. She bat my one of my absolute faves. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, why does Larry Fink's investment approach have Republicans clenching their teeth? Wait till you hear this next. a stunning headline this morning in the Financial Times. State treasurers punish asset manager for pursuing policies allegedly hostile to fossil fuels industry. In other words, Republican office holders are pulling $1 billion from BlackRock over ESG concerns. Basically, the pension managers in some Republican states are angry with BlackRock's so-called green investing policies. So they're taking action. Utah's pulling some money at Arkansas, Louisiana, South Carolina. Curtis Loftus, the state treasurer of South Carolina, explained that while he admires BlackRock's CEO, Larry Fink, he thinks this kind of sustainable investing is hypocritical. He talks about, quote, poor people, historical minorities are having money and services diverted from them for these globalist leftist ideas, end quote. To me, this is just plain nuts. And not just because a billion-dollar hit means nothing to BlackRock, which, by the way, manages about $8.5 trillion. More importantly, BlackRock runs these ESG funds because there's demand for them. People want to invest in companies that they think are doing good, or at least not actively damaging the environment. They want to be able to switch, not just be in a regular fund. ESG matters. They have a ton of non-ESG funds, too, at BlackRock. It's not like they're force-feeding people into doing this. Let me give you two pieces of sanity about this, and it does make me angry. First, the demand is real. So many people want to invest this way that when you look at the biggest winners, the SP 500 and the NASDAQ, they tend to be companies that are passionate about moving away from fossil fuels. I just finished analyzing the winners of the third quarter. Some of the best performers were companies that make it their business to help the environment. So if you think ESG investing somehow hurts poor people or historical minorities, you haven't looked at the facts and what stocks are winning, provided they have actual earnings and good balance sheets. Second, though, what makes this whole move a total travesty 
is that of the asset managers I know, Larry Fink is by far the most level-headed on the climate issue. He doesn't want us to go green at all costs. He doesn't favor higher gasoline prices or something stupid like that. He doesn't want us to be like Germany, which foolishly decided to mothball its nuclear plants, replace them with Russian natural gas. Instead, Larry's been a driver of the brown to green concept over time. If you think that's anti-fossil fuel, well, guess what? Nearly every major oil CEO feels the same way. They recognize they have to change, and they're spending furiously to go green. In other words, if you want to vilify Larry Fink for favoring cleaner skies at the expense of lower energy costs, well, guess what? you got the wrong asset manager. Fink's thoughtful. He's offering the choices that people really do want, especially younger people who care a lot more about climate change because they're going to have to live with it. We keep having extreme weather events. The science says that they're going to keep getting worse. It's turning into a business problem. You ignore climate change. You ignore what could turn out to be the biggest risk factor of all time just a few years down the road. So it makes me sick to my stomach that Fink and BlackRock are being singled out on this stuff. I know tons of managers who are a lot more zealous. Honestly, I don't know a soul in the money management business who's a climate change denier, which is doubtless what, who the state treasurers want to invest with. We only know Fink's views on this stuff because he has a backbone and he isn't afraid to voice them in public, even as he's often criticized from both sides, either for being too green or not green enough. You know what? Here's what I think. When you're attacked from both sides, you tend to be exactly where you should be, which is why I admire this man and his firm so much. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.